Hello everyone. This is Craps, a podcast hosted by me Arun Shridhar and my wonderful co-host Jojo Platt. First, thanks to you our listener who has been loyally listening to our episode so far. Please go one step further, subscribe and rate us on your podcast application. We have been told that it is the best way to get in front of more listeners and it definitely helps. One of my heroes, James Black, the person who discovered the world's first reflux medication, cementidine, and the world's first beta blocker, said, "Discovery is about knowing the unknown. Innovation is about converting those unknowns into products that ultimately help people." And if you heard of our interview with Dr. Bob Ruffalo, the scientist who developed carvedilol, the first beta blocker for heart failure, you will know that innovation is a lonely journey. so much so that you probably haven't heard much about our guest today except for the ones in the area he has changed the paradigm of how neuromodulation is done when spinal cord stimulation a concept so eloquently explained by our very first podcast guest warren grill has has been in vogue since the 1970s our guest today was able to innovate within that space and has been able to show the world that innovation can occur even in the midst of established players in the market he and his team have single-handedly converted what was perceived to be a game for metronic boston scientific and guidant the big 3 into the big 4 of neuromodulation industry however the story of its genesis and the dis- difficulties that the startup faced has never been told and people have almost taken it for granted Today we are going to talk about this and unpick the people, the personalities, the signs and what was behind the company Nevro. Its founder's name could very well be a character's name in Game of Thrones. Um and here is he, he in the flesh, Constantinos Alataris. Welcome to the shows, Constantino. Thank you for having me. I always wanted to meet Jojo since seems to know everybody at Neuromod space. <laughs> <laughs> If you haven't been to a party yet, we're we're going to get rid of COVID and and have some more parties. So I'd love to have you there. I've heard there is quite some some really good ones, especially the DJs that are really happening. I I do I do have a good line on DJs. <laughs> I know one of them, that's why. So it's a joke. <laughs> oh, so you're part of the the part of the fraternity already with the Zanos brothers. <laughs> Only when they allow me to be. <laughs> which It's is nice fantastic because family. that is that is actually exactly how i i kind of started knowing a bit more about uh, personally about you uh constantinos from from another uh person uh here in the uk who was explaining about some of the wonderful parties that 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 would happen and uh, and they actually were partying all the more all the way until 5 a.m in the morning and then the next morning the meeting would be at 8 o'clock and you would just show up fresh uh, as if nothing happened the previous night and and you were there uh, whereas everybody else would just be dragging themselves out of the bed well, listen you know some of the these things don't happen without a good group of people dedicated people that want to you know break some barriers and think around the box and it also requires to have some fun because there is some also some pretty tough 
uh, days and nights. So, but the ones you're referring to were actually fun nights where we actually had stuff to celebrate, like a publication or some significant sales milestone. But yeah. with, uh, with Theo, uh, it's different because Theo is actually uh, came from the same lab I came out to just studying uh, non-linear uh, neural networks and kind of modeling uh, brain plasticity, especially how the hippocampus deals with uh, memory formation. So, but he, he took the right course after that. He, he continued with research and now he's doing exceptionally well. So that's the connection. Uh, and he's obviously much younger than I am. So he's, he, he's done great. That's fantastic. So... You were there at 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 University of Southern California, uh, which is where you cut your teeth in research. But then you actually moved from that into something that was completely different, into into business and business development at Guidant. Worked for a couple of VC firms, etc. Tell mm-hmm. us a bit more about that part of your life. Why did you make the move from hardcore science that you were working on at USC over to that side of of science, which is almost considered by academics as a dark side. Uh, tell us a bit more about that. That's right. Well, it depends on how you do it. Uh, I, I, was, I really wanted to just see a product come to market. Um, not obviously in such a uh, well-thought uh, goal at that time. You know, when you finish your PhD, you're, you're still trying to figure out, you know, what's the right place for you. But definitely... Um, uh, I think research is is better served uh, with uh, people like Theo and Vasilis Marmaredis, which have you know pushed the field forward as as much as anybody else. Uh, mine was a little bit more modest um, aspiration to just actually put all of that to creating a product in some vague form. So I thought if I if I go to business school and then start uh, going the business side, you know, I can actually make some progress towards that goal. And um, frankly, Guidant, although it was their business development group at that time, was a very active business development group for their CRM, the cardiac rhythm management side, and less so the, uh, the stent side, because the stent had their own business development group. So it was a great learning experience, kind of how the business world works, you know, just and they, you know, it was a group that gave us pretty free reign. Like if I, if I wanted to, I could take a two-week sales course, which I did. Uh, you could go and talk to all the engineers at, uh, up in Minneapolis and kind of learn. Uh, and those were fairly uh, technology-heavy products. You know, not, we were talking about the new defibrillators at that time. There was a yeah. lot of work on AFib. Yeah. So it was really exciting, um, exciting enough to spend... Two, two, two to three weeks in Minneapolis in the middle of January. It was fun, actually, looking back to it. <laughs> I think that I just, might be better than the, than the Volkswagen bug-sized mosquitoes in summer. So <laughs> Everybody keeps telling me because, you know, I, I started doing work uh, with Nevro, with Mayo Clinic. So I ended up spending a lot of time there and uh, meeting a lot of great people. Uh, so there's always the, the joke that's so much better in the summer with the uh, warm weather and the lakes. Uh, so, uh, but 
in the middle of January is a little bit, you know, coming from Southern California, you just don't have enough coats. I, I don't think you can have enough coats, regardless of being from Southern California or, or Greece or anywhere in between. But right, right. No, but it was a great, I mean, uh, it, it was the attitude, uh, you know, people wanted to uh, take the right steps and explore new concepts. I think that that was what I appreciated, you know, in, in the proper way. Um, so and, 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 we ended up doing a lot of work there. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of just your PhDs, just tell us, let us just spend maybe a minute here in terms of what it was in bioengineering and biomedical engineering. How heavy of, of biology versus, versus engineering were that, that you had, because I think, that would the reason why I'm asking that question is because that would I'm hoping that that would really tie up to the story that we are going to talk about, which is the Nevro story. So tell us a bit more about that because if you had to go and seek a lot of help in and training and 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 talking about and learning about engineering, um, mm-hmm. so I would have assumed that your PhD was something different. So yeah. Well, it, it was, you know, this was a program that uh, USC had put together um, and there was connection with labs at Caltech and UCSD in the broader sense. So it was almost a consortium, but the main lab I was working uh, for right now was uh, Vasilis Marmarelis, who was the, doing the nonlinear uh, neural networks and he's probably the person who has done the most for that field and uh, Ted Berger. Uh, and Ted has been involved after that with a lot of efforts and huge contribution and grants as far as kind of recording from the hippocampus and trying to model um, uh, the plasticity and, and kind of trying to understand how uh, memories are formed. So we're talking about different uh, electrical pulse sequences and how do you describe a system like that and how do you try to model it in in essence at the end even the ambition was to create a vlsi chip that kind of uh, captures all of that so this was you know vasilis marmarelis which was the mathematical underpinnings of all of that this is kind of what's behind all the in my view at least most of the ai algorithms that we're using right now these are non-linear networks of multiple nodes that learn over time and let the data kind of guide you um i just as we just we're not that smart to, to market it properly as ai so uh, and it was the era before the fuzzy networks the non-linear networks uh, uh kernels and uh uh, uh, all sorts of different ways to model uh, things. So uh, Volterra series, what can I, I'm, I'm trying to remember here all the tools that we were using, but these are still tools that kind of used today right now and obviously improved over time in order to kind of come up with uh, that sense of, of intelligence on how do we model biological uh, signals. So we had a lot of experience from, you know, these are all... Uh, you know, uh, brain slices, all recordings from uh, hippocampus, but just trying all sorts of different uh, pulse sequences and kind of seeing the effects of each one of them. So um, that was kind of the extent of the work there. Um, but that, you know, after that, it was more about uh, 
the whole how this might translate and, and now we're just trying to find some threads here is you know the understanding that different uh, frequencies different path sequences have a different effect not only they're perceived differently but they have a different effect on the brain on the central processing so that that's kind of high look so I think one of the things that Arun alluded to is the sort of the venture capital side of things. Um, so you were you were in the lab, or you you did your undergrad work, you went and got your MBA, you went and got your PhD, and then you ended up at Bay City Capital for five years. At some point, how how has that affected your approach to? Um, starting up Nevro and, and to, to launching companies that actually translate some of the research that you've done? Well, it, it was, a, you know, frankly, this was the, uh, the, les the lessons, the classes you have to take as far as, first of all, uh, being close to uh, great people from entrepreneurs building companies and kind of see their passion and what are the things that were important that they care about. Also on the financing side, how do you finance something like that? So this was my schooling outside the MBA. Um, as far as you know, what investors want to see, how do you put this together, and how do you put the team together? And and obviously that you you learn that only after you start doing it. So that's the ultimate uh, lesson. Um, that that kind of gave me the opportunity to be exposed. Uh, to people and kind of start understanding fundraising, um, financing, uh, even corporate um, uh, development, uh, clearly with guidance as well, but that was an important aspect, especially on the device side, uh, the, the corporate participation or or kind of as, a, as an exit is always important historically. So that, that was kind of um, some of the things that, uh, was um, was allowed to learn there, and, and also uh, working close with uh, Mayo at that time, where Mayo had the uh, Mayo Ventures and quite a lot of effort to taking technologies out of uh, out of their cabinet of, of of technologies, but also kind of uh, access to people, clinicians that could bring a different perspective. Right? It's it's science is only as good as it, it solves a problem for the clinician in the clinic, let's call it. So one of, the, one of the things that I've learned sort of tangentially along the way is that part of Nevro's secret sauce really was about, excuse me, the 10 kilohertz setting. And that's, that's as much, there, I think there's almost as much of a business case behind the 10 kilohertz as there is a scientific one. Is there a tie and, and did that provide any additional IP protection in terms of what you guys were doing? Or why, why is this, as a non-scientist or engineer, I'm, I'm curious to know why is this 10 kilohertz, kilohertz story such a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because it, it provides superior pain relief, much better pain relief, sustained pain relief. It's a different mode of action, if you wish. This is something that goes beyond the gate theory that's been around since 67. So that's why, I mean, it just works better. That's why it is a big deal. Also, there was IP that we were able to put around it that was uh, pretty well defended and it still stands despite multiple uh, challenges. 
So they, they have to work together. But at the end, this is what gives you the, uh, the results. It works better. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a bit more about the science aspects of how 10 kilohertz work? You alluded to the gate theory of pain. Um, and just talk us through how your idea evolved from that to how it actually became the, the staple sauce, so to speak, of the product. Um, yeah. Uh, first of all, you know, you have to realize that this, these things don't happen because of one person. Um, something like that, building a product that's superior to everything else in the market that has done so well, um, that has created a, almost a new category, uh, happens because a lot of people with significant clinical and scientific expertise come to shepherd it during the development process. And, and even now, I, I can still, it's clear as you go through a journey like that, who are the people that have meaningful, critical contribution as you start from the preclinical, which we did a lot at Mayo and Stanford and UC Davis, to all the way to the market. And there's always things that you learn. Unless you have these people around the table to not only challenge, but also provide constructive input, anybody can challenge per se but how do you take something and drive it and steer it properly so that's the to me that's the first one and then um the the if you're asking about secret so it's not a secret source in the sense that it's just a different way of thinking like we we used to uh think about you know hitting a nerve with a pulse and then it fires pretty one-to-one relationship and it only goes to a certain degree and we know what that can produce and the potential effects that that has this was all about exploring what really happens if we start playing with different parameters if we even come closer to physiological signals um, that have different rhythm different patterns different frequencies any way you define it would that give us a better effect? Would, would that give us a different effect? And I think now everybody kind of realizes, yeah, it does make a difference. So yeah. that was, the, that was the, uh, the base for all of that. And then obviously we started figuring out what's the appropriate set of parameters for this application. And it's not for every application the same. So that that was kind of you know and and the whole thing a little bit started because there was one unanswered question the unanswered question is what really happens if you start moving away from these old standard steam parameters nobody knew but everybody thought oh you know i we have three big companies here and they they've done the research nothing happens but nobody had a, a really good answer of what happens if you expand the range of parameters and can that have activate different systems Can that have a different system. So that was the one thing that, because I, you know, one of the first people I talked to was Elliot Krems up in San Francisco. And I talked to a lot of physicians and scientists after that, and nobody could answer the question. We didn't even have models for that we had single pulse models so nobody could answer the answer the question what happens if we go outside that range and that kind of prompted us to kind of start looking there 
when no, nobody it's, else was. It, it, it's actually a fantastic way uh, because, I mean, especially for someone like me who comes from the pharmaceutical side of things, I think one of the critical things that the pharmaceutical scientists do really well in most cases is to understand both what is called as PKPD. So what does the drug do to the body and what does the body do to the drug? In the case of, of, of neural stimulation or, or electrical stimulation of nerves, I think that part of it is not greatly appreciated uh, as much. And especially at the time when you actually started Nevro, I think, I don't think, as you rightly point out, it, it wasn't done very well. So can you just walk us through, just for the sake of our listeners, what were the various type of, of tests when you, re- you refer to preclinical, you refer to clinical, what were the different kind of risk mitigating steps or steps that you used to disprove some of the uh, challenges that were thrown at you um, to ultimately inform yourself and, and inform the people that, that to arrive at a 10 kilohertz kind of parameter or a high frequency parameter, let's just keep it that way, right? So what were the different mm-hmm. things that you did to ultimately get to that? Uh, I think that would be the useful learning experience for people to move away from the close to 100 hertz stimulation that was the, the staple of what spinal cord stimulation was done at, at the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can we can use your PKPD analogy, right? We did a lot of animal works, different here at Mayo, at Stanford, at UC Davis, all sorts of different uh, models and approaches in order to understand what's really happening. If you were able to record from anywhere, from the spine, from the brain, what was really the effect of the stimulation? So we try to understand that and then kind of start defining a set of parameters that we, we thought could be more useful in the clinic. But even at that time, we, we had very little uh, information about the effect in the clinic, but we started seeing a different effect. So you start with that from the, from the uh, animals and then the, the immediate step after that is to go carefully to humans. And carefully means... Yeah, I mean, I think we've uh, never has published uh, many of that where you do steam for a few minutes, where we do steam for two weeks. And then obviously we started doing the long-term studies and, you know, we went six months, 12, 24 months. And now, I, I mean, the data set right now is huge. But in all of those cases, you start seeing everything, the data, validating the assumptions or put it differently nothing was pointing to futility that this is not what we see in the animals in the lab has no effect in the clinic so everything there was enough support to keep going right you you always need to challenge especially when you start with um, you know small data sets but that that was kind of the uh, the build up between the multiple animal models and, and animal work to short-term exposure, longer-term exposure, and, and going to there. And obviously, on the clinic, I mean, these are not rocket science. You, you try to keep your patient population um, uniform, and you, you make sure that the data are uh, can stand on their own in a peer-reviewed publication. So as you're investigating a novel approach or something that that really hadn't been done before, you're going outside the norm. How did you how did you gain acceptance 
um, as you're building your data sets and, and knowing that you've got something here and starting to get traction with researchers who had kind of grown up with, no, this other way is how we do it. This is how it's always been done. This is how we're always going to do that. Are, were there naysayers mm -hmm. in your way? Oh, so, so. I cannot even, there were a lot of naysayers. I'm I think so it's, naive. It's the, it's, no, you're not. <laughs> uh, it, it's the opposite, right? How can you find credible people that are willing to help you kind of navigate the waters, be realistic with you, right? You don't want someone who's kind of finding your dreams with no substance, someone who's skeptical, and I love that, but is willing to take the appropriate steps. And there's always people like that. Yes, it's not easy to find them, but I was surprised that top people, top investigators in Europe, in the US, um, were able to uh, be involved uh, and, and have a, a, an impact from Jean-Pierre Van Boiter and Iris Smet in Belgium, from Jamie Henderson at Stanford, uh, uh, Dr. Al Casey in London. I mean, these are top people in the field. Um, and they uh, saw the data and, and they kept going with us, assuming the data pointed to the right direction, right? It's, it's, it's as simple as that. Um, there, is, there is many people that had, uh, you know, such a, a, a profound uh, impact to where we're going. Um, so uh, it, it's, you know, I, I, I'm kind of, I don't want to leave people out, you know, um, uh, that can really have a huge impact. Yeah. Sorry to break this up, guys. Just wanted to remind you to rate us on your podcast application. So you, you very adroitly shifted that one to the people who supported you, but I think there was a story we heard recently with um, Bob... Bob Ruffalo and the and the discovery and um, application of Corvidol, and so he shared some really just heartbreaking stories about some of the things that were said to him from the naysayers. Are there any that that stand out to you that that made you really maybe doubt where you guys were going? Oh, uh, every night, every night we doubted that this is you know maybe we're not you know, we're kidding ourselves. Maybe the data is small data set and it, it doesn't show anything. We had so many meetings where we're pouring over the data and we're looking for red flags. And personally, if you don't have that feeling that, hey, somehow, you know, there, there's something I'm, I'm missing, then something will pop up and missing it. Um, but, you know, that that's, it's not, you know, a, a diplomatic comment. This is the reality. You have to sit down with the data, with the people that actually can help you look at the data critically and, and, and kind of see whether it's worth, you know, persevering and worth uh, pushing through that. Because the easy thing to say is, oh, it's, you know, it's not going to work. The easy thing to say is, what about this? What about that? The difficult thing is to find a way to address all of those risks in a way that nobody has any concern after that. So let me actually ask you in a slightly um, kind of uh, specific question there, uh, Constantinos. Were those naysayers constructive? Like, for example, when they said, 
I don't believe in this. Did they actually suggest that you do something or was it just more dismissive? Um, because I think you definitely had a group of few good men uh, helping you uh, and and your team of good fellas, uh, if you sense a theme there. But I think there are potentially, uh, yeah, it would be useful to understand what did, how constructive were they with their comments if they were doubting what you were suggesting would happen with different yeah, parameters yeah. of spinal cord stimulation. I think it's important for innovators and young people and, and others who actually don't do this for a living like you uh, mm-hmm. to actually appreciate what were the journey that people took uh, to get to that stage. Yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes there are uh, criticisms that you have to address. So we did, to give you an example, we did a lot of uh, modeling where nobody had done more than signal pulse modeling and finite element uh, analysis to actually show that we are activating, even on a theoretical uh, framework, the the fibers that we want to. And that was on top of our clinical work, which was uh, not clinical, preclinical work, which was single cell recordings where we actually see what specifically we're doing in the lab. So there was some criticism without data, but we created the data set to address that. And, you know, we worked, that's why we worked with a lot of uh, neurosurgeons like Gary Hyde here before at Stanford and and at uh, Kaiser. Uh, A lot of people from uh, different special, I mean, in in Mayo, at Mayo, we had five physicians from different specialties kind of consult, not only David Martin, who was the head of the uh, uh, anesthesia group. Also, people like Thomas Simopoulos in, in Boston. So it, it, the, the group of people that started, the more data you have and the more you're able to address any legitimate concern, I think you kind of see people start see that and they come to take a look, an objective look at the data. I mean, you also need to realize that in, in every market, there are competitive pressures as well. Right, we here we were competing with three big companies that obviously had to have their own messaging, so they can try to uh, stop what we were doing. Right, this is just a normal competitive environment. Yeah. And 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 what kind of help did you actually have from investors? Because I think the stakeholders there, while you're developing this as a startup, I mean, this is as much your investors as, 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 as I mean, it's as much the investors as the, as the clinicians that you were working with. Um, mm-hmm. How was their support? Because they, you were being barraged with challenges and you were trying to work through them. How did you uh, manage that aspect of your relationship? Um, because you were still a startup at that point of time, right? You were not an established company like Nevro is at this point. Uh, Nevro, uh... We started in 2006. Uh, we entered the, U- the European market in 2010 commercially. And it was in the US, I think 2015. Uh, Michael Demain were running it then, and this was after the IPO. So it tells you how long it takes. And it's a wholly different story between the commercialization uh, in Europe. Um, where we had to break the doors down versus in the US where we had the data set that has been vetted and FDA approved with superiority. 
Right. So the investors is it's not there's no magic per se. Yes, there's different opinions about uh, studies and designs and all of that. But at the end, is the management that that has the the decision of that. As long as you do what you say, and on time, and the data keeps being supportive, there's there's little reason for um, for things to not be able to find support. And then it's just a matter of pricing. Obviously, you know it, it, there are financings, and pricing has implications about ownership. Um, it's it's kind of the progress that you do, and nobody can argue with the progress. So I, I have a, a little bit of a different track here. Um, I'm very mm-hmm. close to somebody who was a candidate for a spinal cord stimulator, um, non-technical person, not not in our field. And so when we were talking about the the um, different approaches, I wasn't able to adequately explain what's the difference between the Nevro device versus some of the others that were on the, out there on the market. How would you explain to a family member or somebody outside of neurotech what what makes the Nevro device different? What are what are the salient features of of Nevro's SCS device? I, I can tell you how I explain it to my father. Perfect. It gives you double the pain relief, and there's no buzzing or tingling when you move around. And is that is that a feature of the 10 kilohertz setting? The the lack of paresthesia. Absolutely. It's impossible. You cannot have paresthesia at those frequencies. This is goes to the mechanism of action. So, and he was, he was sold on it, <laughs> but it uh, probably biased. Uh, but you know, the, the reality is that you have uh, superior, uh, based on the FDA label, superior uh, efficacy, better pain relief. And you don't have to do anything. You don't have to mess with it. Um, because it really takes away that central sensitization and, and gives you something you can start living your life. So I was, I suggested to my dad. That's actually a fantastic summary and the most simplistic summary of why something would work. And you can't argue with that. Um, so from that point where you actually got the pivotal data and you kind of explained the journey there in terms of timeline as well, um, can you actually tell us a bit more about breaking into the to the big three with that data was that sufficient enough and and there was a point at which you actually kind of moved away from nevro as well um and this is a this was your baby this was a baby that you kind of had a chance to kind of nourish and cherish the whole time um and all of this you moving away from nevro kind of happened prior to the, um, the, it actually happened prior to the 2015 timeline that you were talking about earlier. Um, do you want to talk us through about that aspect of that, Constantinos? Because it's important for scientists in general to hear about that aspect of, of innovation because everybody wants to hold their baby dear and see through to completion, et cetera. Whereas you've been very adapted at going through that, but is there a story there or, or is it, is it, is it just like your personality? You like to keep it simple and you kind of want to go from point A to point B and then move on to the next interesting thing. Um, no, you know, I, I never left too far away. Uh, but um, listen, the, the Nevro story for us, um, you know, breaking into a market where it was dominated by three big companies at that time, uh, Boston Scientific, St. Jude, now Abbott, 
and uh, Medtronic, it, it was a huge undertaking, especially as we were building the data set. And that was the story uh, that, that I was driving in Europe with the first commercialization. So as you can imagine, um, we were still five years away uh, from the FTA and the financing uh, elements change as the company was preparing for next steps, which you don't know in a, your typical old style device, whether it's, a, it's an acquisition, which usually in the past that was the case or uh, potentially having enough traction um, to get into the market. And for us, we took the point that let's keep pushing uh, and show traction OUS while we're uh, finishing the US study um, for the FTA approval. And that's, you know, I, I was spending half of my time there uh, managing the commercialization at that time. So it was a great time. Uh, I still remember it. Uh, like many, many times, the people that helped push that. And actually, this was the one that drove, kind of created a sense of trajectory for the company when we went to start finding new financing in the US in the form of an IPO. And the IPO was a financing. So, and at that time, we had enough and we were able to attract. Uh, someone, uh, even before the IPO, someone like uh, Michael DeMain, who was the chief operating officer of Medtronic. And that created, um, added to the company. And uh, Michael, uh, obviously, the data is there as far as the IPO and the yeah, so it it wasn't it wasn't so much of a difficult decision to kind of uh, to, to actually give up the the head of the company position because you actually found that it was needed by the business and therefore that was a right choice for you uh, and 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 for the company at that point to kind of for you to give the re- for you to give the reins to other people who would actually nothing and then for you to move on. Yeah, nothing that matters is an easy decision. It's an easy decision doesn't yeah. quite matter that much. Yeah, exactly. No, which is which is which is such a big learning experience, right? Uh, and and I think it it takes a lot of of uh, both personal as well as kind of uh, business maturity to realize that and to do it. And we've all seen examples in the past about other things uh, where things haven't gone well. So this is a very refreshing story to hear, and I think definitely an example for many people to emulate. Well, most of the time, things uh, people focus on kind of discrete moments. Um, but at the end of the time, if you look at uh, companies that made it or companies that didn't make it, it's the people around it um, and the decisions that were made at each, at many points in time. It's it's not a one-time thing. It's it's kind of a continuation of the effort and the continuing support and, and drive. So it, it takes a lot of people to build a company like that. Um, and everybody has their own contribution. So, and it's a, it's a, it's a fight till the end. I mean, the company is still public. So uh, and, and I'm, I'm glad now the, the new manager is doing exceptionally well as well. Yeah. It has the company properly valued. No, exactly. And I think it, it, it's a fantastic lesson. So it continues. <laughs> the story is not over yet. No, it definitely is not. But but I think, as I said, it's a fantastic journey in science and innovation and what it takes to move from point A to point B and then ultimately 
look for what is needed for the business and ultimately move that forward so i think i think yeah. hats off to you in terms of getting the company to a stage and then hats off to the rest of the management and and the it's current management it's definitely against the odds that i'll tell you that yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and 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 it's it's a point it's definitely a case study in point there um so but now i think you've kind of moved on to do more uh, kind of interesting things uh, do you want to tell us a bit more about what you're currently doing constantinos um because especially on the linkedin profile and i know a bit about what you're doing but at least on the linkedin profile it talks about um your company your current company talks about brain interfaces but really right. what you're doing right. is slightly different so i mean would do you want to share that with us it also talks about icarus right you can go close to the sun and get burned although in greece <laughs> icarus is actually a, a, a point of uh, pride <laughs> so but uh, that was more of a joke you know you, we did have some sense of humor uh, yeah. we are continuing to that uh, there isn't much i, I want to say right now uh, quite yet about that but we're kind of taking it to the next step uh, in it, to me uh, brain interfaces if your target is actually in cns if it's in the brain as far as how do you access certain areas how do you reprogram certain functions because right now we we do you know uh, the work that uh, uh, the zanos brothers are doing and others uh, talented uh, scientists you can kind of you start to understand how the brain actually monitors uh, a lot more than just pain so we 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 do have and definitely uh from uh deep brain recordings and deep brain stimulation we know about the impact on neurological diseases but right now it goes even further as far as you know even immune function or even higher level aspects where we know that the brain has a regulatory um role uh and maybe that would be another lever we can use to target certain different conditions so that's kind of uh my uh intellectual interest if you wish um yeah yeah and, and then just let's get some data and, and see if uh, as i said the data needs to guide you uh, the the point is how, how do you find a way to do that with when data is limited so that's yeah, where you absolutely. find the right people but the thing is it's uh, and and just like the nevro story this one is going in the right direction as well because uh just earlier in the year you had some very promising early uh, but definitely promising results with respect to kind of stimulation of of, of stimulation of the auricular vagus nerve uh for the treatment in a cohort of of rheumatoid arthritis patients uh i think that looks good so far uh and that is slightly different i mean is the concept that you're using vagus is a way to tune systems in the brain and and therefore reach homeostatic level that's the type of hypothesis that you're going with with warso or is it is it different you seem to read a lot of uh jular publications i assume i am a scientist constantino so i definitely <laughs> read a lot of things listen i only read the, read the daily mail when i travel which i do you, as well you, <laughs> 
<laughs> it's a joke, whoever. Daily Mail is the UK uh, equivalent of the Star or something. It, it, for people who don't know about Daily Mail, it is the most intellectual publication in the whole world. Um, it, is, it is the best. Depending on definitions, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it, it just depends on how you view it and what mood you're in on a given day. Yeah, but anyway. Exactly. Uh, it, it's good, good for dozing off. Uh, so yeah, I mean this is this is one of the, of the aspects we we're not really using the uh, uh, the Vegas per se. the The idea is not about the Vegas. The idea is how can you get access to the right brain regions. So uh, yes, just to answer your question, we are using the afferent and afferent only nerve, which is in your ear, just as a wire to get us where we need to be. And then we're trying to adjust things there. Um, the, the research is fairly early. Um, there are publications uh, that are coming out. Um, there'll probably be another one at ACR. Um, and we'll, we'll keep, again, I, I think for this one, um, this one that wouldn't go far at all, because it really is uh, what you would call a moonshot. Um, unless there were the right people to guide us there. And again, it's the right people around the table. Like we're working here with people at Stanford and there's no way to do it, especially in diseases that are, you know, people depend on their medication and are looking potentially for no drug options, but there's a lot of things taken into consideration, complex physiology. So we're trying to have the right people being open-minded and, and do the development in a way that makes sense. We'll see how the data um, shapes up. So I'm, I'm going to go back and, and pick up on some of your Greek mythology, along with Icarus and, and flying toward the sun, and then your moonshot, which actually is, is, uh, has a, a tremendous connection to another episode we've got on Mission IS, ISRO. Um, I'm going to add to that the kind of the Midas touch. So you had the Midas touch with, with Nevro, um, you've got some great data coming out of your current efforts, but you were also on, you had a big week last week as a scientific advisory board member with some other friends of mine over at IOTA. That, that's, oh, yeah. I, I'd say that, you that's for them. Track record going. <laughs> no, that's for them. I mean, Michelle and Jose and their team, these are amazing people. They uh, are. they are pushing, um, the science, not only the ultrasound power of sensors, but also doing a lot of work on, you know, how do you stimulate nerve again for inflammation, for neurological diseases, and just coming out of the lab and being able to build a company. Uh, my, this is all, it's all them. It's, it's part of surrounding yourself with great people and great talented people with, with vision and, and fortitude. Sounds like absolutely, and those two are definitely uh, that type. They they are another set of brothers from a different mother, oh. but you know, they I I consider them inseparable. Oh, for sure, for sure, it's, <laughs> it's so so fun to, to get together with them. It's just amazing. It, it's just tough to keep up with with their smarts and their humor and and their Spanish. You know, just yeah, oh the Spanish side. Yeah. <laughs> I can only if I could only swear as good, that'd be great. Uh, <laughs> They they promise they will teach me some better swear words. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're great. Uh, it's just amazing. Yes. Uh, both of them. 
So I, I do want to thank you very much for your time for coming on. We're really excited to see what what comes out next out of Warso, and and it was great to get a peek behind the curtain of some of the behind the scenes work at Nevro and your work there, and some of the things that make you tick. So thank you for sharing all of that with us, and we wish you tremendous continued success. Thank you so much. You guys appreciate it. Same for your podcast. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks good, good luck. Bye. Our sound editor is Sayantan Chandran. The soundtrack was Digger by Acid Dad. You can find their collections on Apple iTunes Store, Google Play Store, Spotify, and many other platforms. This is Arun and Jojo signing off. Okay.